So back in the 5th or 6th century BC, there was a philosophy that took hold in the Greek-speaking world. It was the philosophy that we now call dualism, and it ultimately fragmented into many expressions. But dualism essentially was the philosophical belief that there was a, a radical divide between that which is material, that which you can touch, taste, feel, and that which is immaterial. Many cultures up to that point saw that there was more unity between the physical and the immaterial world, but the Greek dualists convinced people that there is a divide between the material and the immaterial, and to a large degree, the material was characterized by evil and the immaterial was characterized by good. Now, to be sure, when we read God's word and we look, for instance, at the descriptions we have in the word of God about humanity, it's true that there are material and immaterial aspects to our humanity. We are body, soul, heart, spirit, material and immaterial aspects to our humanity. But we also, as Christians, maintain a unified view of life. Let me give you some examples of that. We believe that God, for example, is the Lord of both the material and the immaterial world, do we not? He's not just the Lord of heaven, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And we also believe, this is often underpreached, I think, that God is in the process of redeeming both. So even when all things are redeemed, there's gonna be a new heaven and new earth. We're not gonna be up on some clouds plucking on harps in a disembodied state for all of eternity. So God is in the process of redeeming the physical world and the immaterial world. Even in our, our salvation, our redemption, when we think of our salvation, we think, okay, God has saved my soul, but did, did, how often do we remind ourselves that God is also in the process of saving our bodies? We believe in something called a bodily resurrection, that the body you have now will one day be resurrected from death and made new. So the dualists see a radical divide between the material and the immaterial. Christians acknowledge there are immaterial aspects and material aspects to life, but we maintain that there is a unity of these two things. Now, I, I, I'm giving you all this information as a lead up to Acts 21. I want to explore Acts 21, starting with verse 37 and go right through to chapter 22, verse 29. And on one hand, we would say, as Christians, we, we consider, we concern ourselves with the immaterial, the, the spiritual aspects of our faith. For example, is it not true that we should be praying regularly? That we should trust God? That we should hold tight to his promises? That we should obey him? That we should engage in spiritual things? That we'd say, yeah, we do those things. We pray. We trust God. We believe, believe in his promises. We work on our interior lives. We do all of that. But what we're going to be reminded of today in the text, there's also a place for physical, tangible, material, hands-on, use-your-brain, thinking-type action in this world. Christians should pray for wisdom, in other words. Wisdom is essentially about skillful living. It's about living in a material world, it's about thinking through the issues. Too many Christians have this crazy notion that the Christian life is just immaterial 
And so our job is just to let go and let God. Yeah, there might be people murdering other people. We don't care. We just leave that to God. There may be great evils taking place in the world around us. We'll just pray about it. We'll just be passive. Passivity towards evil, a lack of action towards evil, a lack of using your mind in a broken world, a lack of defending yourself in the midst of evil is actually, whether you know it or not, a consequence of buying into Greek dualism, separating your material responsibilities from your immaterial responsibilities. But a true Christian lives a unified life. They pursue wisdom and they engage both spiritually and materially in the world around them. The Bible calls this wisdom. And it instructs us in passages like Proverbs 2, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. Or in Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom, skillful living in other words, not just knowledge, not just esoteric thoughts, spiritual thoughts, but who actually lives skillfully and the one who gets understanding. And there's many other passages in the Bible that, that speak of these, uh, this reality. Let's look at Paul's life. Paul, I would say, is a pretty good, good example for us to pattern our lives after. Paul demonstrated this in his practical ministry. Did he pray? Yes. Did he trust God? Yes. Did he seek to revere God? Yes. But Paul was also practical. He was practical. He, he watched the people around him. He observed people. He changed the way he spoke, depending on his audience. He worked with physical objects around him. Remember in Athens, he found a, a statue to an unknown God and he used that physical object, that material object to springboard into a conversation about the gospel. He also appealed to the law at times. He put up his hand and said, I, I, want, a, I want a proper trial. I want to see the magistrate. He appealed to his citizenship. He requested an audience at times with public officials. He argued his case in private. He argued his case in public. He spoke in churches. He spoke in the public square. He spoke in synagogues. He was wise. He was a thoughtful, consummate, missionary, preacher, evangelist. And all this ultimately came to him from God. God had equipped him for this. But I really want this sermon today to be a call to the church to get practical. There's other places in the Bible where we're called to pray fast. We talk much about that in our church, but I want you to feel liberated to be a practical Christian in a world that is often opposed to the things of God, to, to engage with the courts, to learn the language of the people around you, to defend yourself against evil and persecution. These are these are things we are green-lighted to do in the word of God. So check this out. The first thing we're going to learn is when we're doing ministry, this is very practical, this is very material, make connections and where possible appeal to the law. Make connections and where possible appear appeal to the law. So Paul is in Jerusalem. He's been arrested. And it says in verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, that's like the, the, the big boss, the magistrate, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? I was like, what are you talking about? Get the wrong guy here. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in uh, Cilicia, which is, if you picture Jerusalem or Israel, you'd have to go north and west. It's kind of up, up the top there. A citizen of no obscure city, we'll come back to that. He's going to flesh that out a little bit more. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. Now you would think that Paul would then say, let's have a hymn service. A mighty fortress is our God. Let's pray together. Hey, let me preach a sermon to you. That's spiritual, right? That's what spiritual people do. But no, Paul starts by very practically appealing to his citizenship, demanding an audience with the people. Now, there's a couple things, we'll flesh this out a little bit more as we go through the passage, that are notable about Paul's tactics. Number one, he's Jewish, right? What's the Jewish heart language? Hebrew. What language is he speaking? Greek. Greek was like the English of the Roman world. It was the lingua franca, the common tongue that the majority of citizens would have spoke. Not the language of his ethnic heritage, not the language he would have preferred to speak to his mom or dad or his Jewish colleagues, but a language that he learned that enabled him to minister far and wide to as many people as possible. It was the lingua franca of the ancient world. He then clarifies his identity. Now, these incompetent persecutors didn't even know who he was, apparently. They, they got his identity wrong. He was arrested. He was charged. And they didn't even get his identity right. Now, I, I happen to know what that's like. <laughs> Those of you that know a bit of my story, I know, I know what that's like. Fortunately, when I was falsely charged, I was, I was quite excited about it because I found out I was mistaken for a guy that's about 18 years younger than me. Paul clarifies his identity. He appeals to his citizenship. He's going to get even more explicit about that shortly. Since he was a citizen of a Roman town, the green light should have gone on or the light should have gone on in the tribune's mind and thought, actually, Roman citizens have rights. We shouldn't be doing this to him. But at this point, he seems kind of obtuse to what's going on. So that the point is, is that out of the gates, Paul doesn't say anything that you and I would normally consider spiritual. Doesn't pray, doesn't start quoting from the Bible, doesn't lead a hymn sing. He adapts to the language of, his, of the people that he, he wants to have a conversation with and he appeals to his citizenship. Now, there seems to be, to, to me, to be a bit of a lesson in here, and if we were to take this and stack it upon the numerous other instances in Paul's life where he adapts to his situations, it seems to me that maybe one of the lessons for us is we also need to, on a certain level, adapt to our audience, speak to them in their language, Look for points of connection. Here's what the Christian church so often does when it's under persecution or assault. We retreat. 
We retreat into our churches. We become hyper-conservative. Okay, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. So what do we do? We retreat into our churches. We run and hide. We dress differently. We speak our Christianese. We sing and worship. We pray, which are all good things in and of themselves. But we essentially get away from our persecutors. Paul doesn't do that. He leans in. He steps forward. He speaks their language. He doesn't ask them to adopt his language. He appeals to his citizenship. He's a student of the law. He knows what his rights are in order to, in order to be effective in ministry. Now, this next one is going to stretch you because it rubs against the grain of what many of us have been taught. So most of us have been taught something like never, ever, ever, one of the cardinal sins that a Christian could commit is to, in any way, shape, or form, highlight their credentials. God forbid if you ever highlight your credentials, if you ever speak of what you've accomplished, if you ever speak of your education, if you ever appeal to your history, if you ever appeal to your track record, that's, that's got to be arrogant. That's got to be prideful. That's the antithesis of humility. So this next one's going to stretch you if that's your mindset. Paul doesn't hide his credentials or his abilities. Now he's going to balance that out in a moment, but let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. It almost sounds counterintuitive and prideful when you're attacked to appeal to your credentials, to appeal to your track record, to appeal to your history, to appeal to your abilities. But observe this carefully. So he now has, he's speaking Greek to the tribune. He now has an audience. It's in Jerusalem. He now has an audience with the Jews. And so he switches languages. And, and then when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, now before we see what he says, again, we'll emphasize he now switches languages. In other words, even if you don't speak two languages, there's still a principle here. You adapt to your audience. You read the room. You ask questions about people. You try to figure out what their background is. This is one of the skills that all of us needs to be growing in to be able to adapt. As a pastor, I've had to learn this because I come from my own family. I have my own ways. I have my own thoughts. But I minister to a broad range of people from different ethnic backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And you want to look for ins. You want to look for points of connection. You want to look for uh, knowledge of their culture, knowledge of their customs. Paul, Paul is doing this in a small way here, and he does it time and time again throughout his, his ministry. He then says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. It's like, oh, Paul's defending himself? Isn't that prideful? Aren't we supposed to just be passive little pussycats when we're attacked? Isn't that the way of Jesus, just to be silent at all times in the face of our accusers? Defending yourself, that sounds kind of arrogant, Pastor. Trying to prove your point, that doesn't sound like the way of Jesus. Isn't passivity the way of Jesus at all times and at all points? Are we supposed to just run and hide? Are we allowed to actually defend ourselves? Did Paul make a mistake here? Did he trip over his words? Well, actually, if you're committed to truth and someone is falsely accusing you of something, it's your responsibility to correct those false accusations for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of truth. And when they 
heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So initially he has them. Why? Just because he's speaking their language. He could have continued on in Greek. Most of them would have known it. But he continues on in Hebrew. And he said, I am a Jew, appealing to his credentials, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, so he name drops, a well-known Jewish rabbi, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. And then he also appeals to his own spiritual appetites, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Paul highlights his education. He highlights his obedience to the law. He objectively makes his case that he was a zealous follower of the true and living God. Unfortunately, some of us have been wrongly taught that the slightest reference to your knowledge of God, the slightest suggestion that you might actually know something about God, that you might actually have lived in keeping with his commandments, that you might have a knowledge of scripture over many years is arrogant. Now, of course, arrogance is something we all need to be careful about. In Matthew chapter 6, for example, Matthew chapter 6 warns against giving in public, praying in public, or fasting in public if your goal is for everyone to see you and to get attention. So we have this balance. It doesn't say praying in public's bad, fasting in public's bad, or giving in public's bad. But if you're doing it to draw attention to yourself, yes, that is bad. And certainly, I'm sure we've all met or can think of people who may give, who may fast, who may pray. It's like, I'm kind of getting the vibe that you're trying to draw attention to yourself. You don't always know because you can't judge the heart, but you might get that vibe at times. So we need to make sure that none of our outward acts are for the purpose of showing off. But in the right context, properly done, to crush false rumors and allegations by appealing to your God-given abilities and your track record is a-okay. Your material world track record, I'll say it this way, matters just as much as your immaterial world track record. Both matter. Your prayer life matters. Your love for God matters. Your heart for people matters. And your knowledge of scripture matters. And your history of faithfulness and zealousness for God matters. And you don't need to hide that. In fact, each of us should be able to say, go ahead and look at my life. Try to find dirt on me. Go ahead, try for it. Now, in many ways, we're we're like used cars, not like new cars, but used cars. New cars, no scratches, completely perfect from bumper to bumper. When you buy a used car, you expect there's going to be some little dents. There's going to be some scratches. There's going to be some wear in the fabric. But so long as the whole thing is functional, all the systems are running, you still buy it. you, You have a good vehicle. Christians should be like that. We're not saying, oh, we have no scratches, no dents, no flaws. We do have scratches. We do have dents. We do have flaws. We do have things in us that aren't perfect or or isn't perfect. But all the systems should be running. We should be able to say, yeah, more or less, my, my thought life is honoring to God. My 
Engagement in spiritual disciplines is honoring to God. The way I handle my finances is honoring to God. The way I relate to my wife or my significant others is honoring to God. That's not arrogant. All of us should be able to say that and be moving in that direction. So if someone says, you're arrogant, you're a liar, you're a thief, say, what's your evidence? It's not true. And there's nothing wrong with defending yourself saying, sir, you're lying. Here's my track record. I've walked with Christ for X number of years. I, I'm faithful to my spouse. I'm faithful to my children. This is not arrogance. This should be the testimony of each and every believer in this room over time as we conform to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if people want to lie about you, one of the things I get sick and tired of, absolutely sick and tired of, are there hypocrites in the church? Yes. Are there fakes in the church? Yes. But I get sick and tired of Christians participating in the lie. Oh, the church is just full of hypocrites. No, it's not. I certainly hope that isn't true. I certainly hope that all of you, the majority of you aren't hypocrites. And I don't think you are. I'm not suggesting that you're perfect or I'm perfect, but I would look out and say, actually, this is, there's a lot of people here that have a pretty good testimony. They have a good track record. And if people accuse them of hypocrisy or lying, I'm going to defend them because my assumption is they're living for the Lord. So nothing wrong with presenting your credentials. But third, we have the third point I want to um, expose is there's a balance here. So Paul also balances things out by admitting to his past failures. He's not afraid to, to share about his life before Christ. He says, I, I persecuted this way, again, another reference to Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering up uh, to prison uh, men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can hear me test uh, a witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who uh, also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul is going to now rehearse all of the events of his conversion, which we've already read and studied in, in earlier chapters. But right out of the gates, the fact that he's willing to publicly remind his listeners of his previous life. I mean, these are category five offenses, by the way, like a category five hurricane. Paul had swept through the country and had arrested, persecuted, and overseen the deaths of Christians. How comfortable would you truly be listening to me preach today if I said, you know, in my previous life, I used to kill Christians. Like, I'm glad you're saved, but can we get another guy to maybe preach the rest of the sermon? Makes me feel a little uncomfortable. So Paul is a great example of a guy who went from the dark, dark side of life into the light. And it's notable, this is, this is extremely notable. It's notable that when Paul was saved, he wasn't even interested in it. He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't in the synagogue thinking about God. He wasn't reflecting upon spiritual truths. He's literally on his way to arrest and kill Christians, and God just drops down and intervenes and radically converts the guy and humbles him, which is how salvation works, by the way. You might think you're seeking and looking and interested. No, you're not. By nature, we are rebels against God, dead in our sins, and completely disinterested in true spiritual life. 
But God invades our lives as he did with Paul on the road to Damascus. It's an unambiguous event and saves him for his own purposes. So Paul appeals to the law. He admits his past failures, but ultimately his desire is to point people towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he gives what we would call his fuller testimony. So when we're appealing to the law, we're maybe defending ourselves, we're reminding people of our credentials or track record, the ultimate goal is not to say, wow, you're quite the person, but to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul gets to the gospel and he highlights God's grace. Now for the sake of time, it's, it's a lengthy description. It'll come up on the screen. I'm just going to read it rapidly. I'm not going to make a whole lot of comments on this section because you've already heard it. But first of all, he reminds them of his trip to Damascus and the intentions that he had on his trip to Damascus. He says in verse six, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell on the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. If you persecute God's people, you're actually persecuting Jesus. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand to those who were with me, by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And then he visits with uh, Ananias, and we have a record of his baptism. By the way, what comes first, belief or baptism? In every New Testament incident, belief always precedes, comes before baptism. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now... Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. And then we have his past reluctance to be accepted by the Jerusalem Jews decades earlier now and his ministry to the Gentiles. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So it's interesting, he, he, he was lowered in the basket over the wall at Damascus. He had to flee out of Jerusalem. This happens to Paul time and time again. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that at one synagogue after another, I, after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being, uh, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, you'd almost assume at this point that Paul's testimony and proclamation of the gospel would result in mass conversions. That there would be a mighty move of God. 
He had defended himself. He'd spoken two different languages to appeal to his audiences or something like that. But again, Paul appeals to his legal rights. God intervenes behind the scenes. It's not explicit, but it's implicit. And even though he appeals to the law and he's worked with the people, spiritually, they're still blinded. They're not buying it. And uh, this, is, this is the response that he gets. Now, up to this word, they listen to him. Up to what word? Jewish audience. God is sending me to the Gentiles. They're very, very prejudiced at this point in history. They would call the Gentiles dogs. And I know many of you have dogs and you love your dog. You think positive thoughts about dogs. But that's weird compared to how most people have looked at dogs through human history. Dogs were kind of gross. They were kind of disgusting creatures. And so it wasn't like, oh, that's a compliment. Thank you. I, re I remind you of your Pomeranian, which is cute and fluffy. And No, no, this is like, you're gross, you're a Gentile, you're a dog. So very, very prejudiced. And as soon as Paul suggests that God had sent him to minister to the Gentiles, they, they flip out. They raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. Oh, really righteous. We want him dead. For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, they're literally going crazy. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. It's quite a way to be examined. Let's beat the guy. We're examining him. Let's beat him up. To find out why they were shouting against him like this. So, so far, not good. They hate the gospel so much that they want him dead. So at this point, Paul leads a hymn sing. He prays. He calls for fasting. No, at this point, he again appeals to the law. A material matter. He appeals to the law. And when they had stretched him out for the whips, I don't know this for a fact, but I find it interesting that he waits until he's actually on the rack. And then he drops a bomb. He could have done it earlier. could have done it at the beginning of his speech. But now he drops a bomb, showing, I would, I would say, great composure under persecution and stress. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, maybe something like this, um, Quick question for you. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Whoa. You got to love his composure. He has not explicitly said this up till now. He's implied it because he mentions his place of birth, which was in Roman territory twice. But he knows something. He knows that according to the law of the land, and sometimes laws are good, and sometimes laws are bad, and sometimes they're usually inadequate. But he knows that according to the law of the land, they were not actually permitted to flog him without a trial. In previous generations, you couldn't flog a Roman citizen at all. At this point in history, best as I understand, you could. You could be flogged as punishment, but it had to be after a, a duly organized trial. And he had not had that. So he appeals to a legal matter. Doesn't lead a prayer meeting. Doesn't berate them with Bible verses. He appeals to the law. 
When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him, came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizen for citizenship for a large sum, almost probably implying, well, citizenship certainly is cheap today to buy if this guy has it. But then Paul one-ups him. Paul said, well, but I'm a citizen by birth, which was considered to be of greater status than someone who'd had to purchase it. So he kind of puts him in his place. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Not only was Paul a Roman citizen, but again, he was a Roman citizen from birth, giving him unquestionable legal rights. So he's not opposed to appealing to the law, nor should we be. Now, the laws of our country, many of them are messed up, but many of them are also pretty good. Do you know there's still a law in the criminal code that says if you stand up in our church, if you stood up right now in the church and disrupted the service, if you started yelling at me, you could go to jail for two years. If you disrupt a wedding, if you disrupt a funeral, if you try to arrest me as a minister of the gospel when I'm traveling to my church to officiate at a service, you can be arrested and go to prison for two years in the country of Canada. In the criminal code, this is not a municipal bylaw. I think that's a pretty good law. Anybody want to try it? <laughs> it's a pretty good law. At the, in the preamble of our charter, it doesn't seem to be recognized, but it's still there. We should still appeal to it. Talks about the supremacy of who? God, not the prime minister, not the local police chief, not the local magistrate. It says the supremacy of God. Now our country has bad laws. It has an absence of laws in the area of infanticide, for example, in the womb. There's no laws. You can abort your kid right up to the day they're due. That's bad. But there are still certain rights and privileges that we have that people in North Korea would give their left and right arms for. And we shouldn't be afraid to appeal to those. I think, why don't, we should just be passive. Just, just let the world fall apart. Isn't that the way of Jesus? Well, <laughs> there are times when we need to be silent and it takes wisdom and discernment. There are times we need to perhaps retreat, but there's nothing wrong with knowing the law and appealing to it and leveraging it because truth matters and liberty matters. These are, these are okay things for us to engage in. We're not dualists. It's not just about getting the spiritual life right. We live in a material world. And don't start singing the song in your own head, okay? But we live in a material world. The, the tribune first assumed that Paul had bought it, but Paul proves that he has legal rights through his birth. And so here's how the tale ends. Paul lives to preach another day. And he preaches another day. Obviously, God is at work behind the scenes, but it's interesting that God, God's work isn't really talked about explicitly in this text. But he lives to preach another day because he wisely engaged people, adjusted his language to his audience. He appealed to his status as a citizen. 
He appealed to his track record and his successes in Christ. He wasn't afraid to, uh, uh, to share with people his past sin and how God had redeemed them. This is all stuff of the, the current world, the current order. And so may I encourage you also in principle to be the kind of person that engages others, reads the room, speaks the language, adapts to your audience, is not afraid to speak about God's victories in your life, in your track record, is also not afraid to speak of your past life and how God has redeemed you from that and to ultimately point people to the Lord Jesus Christ within, within which and within whom there is ultimate hope for anyone, regardless of their background. And may God protect you then as you go before him. Pray fast, work on your relationship with God, but engage with the world around you and allow God to position you and use you to bear much fruit for his honor and for his glory. And we'll just pray now to that end.